0: a for your arrest for the murder of William, Moore, who was the gas station attendant, but you're wrong. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Roth. Danny Martinez has been touted as the state's star witness in Jamie's trial. He was the one that came the closest to the actual murderer, at least according to him. And he was 100% sure that the man that he saw was Jamie Snow. But as we now know, there were a lot of problems with Martinez's testimony. Namely the fact that he failed to identify Jamie on multiple occasions over a nine-year period before he made his positive ID. But there was another witness who doesn't have that problem, Carlos Luna. Carlos actually picked Jamie out of a lineup the first and only time that he had the opportunity, on June 21st, 1991, less than three months after Bill's murder. Today's episode isn't just about Carlos Luna. While his testimony was damning and a major contributing factor in Jamie's conviction, it wouldn't have been possible without a series of unfortunate events. As it turns out, when you take a 14-year-old witness, a state's attorney that was hiding evidence in order to secure a conviction, and an inadequate defense attorney, the result is what appears to be a solid witness in front of the jury. Jamie's court-appointed attorney, Frank Pitzel, obviously dropped the ball at his trial. He wasn't prepared, and in my opinion, he did a pathetic job of cross-examining key witnesses. But it wasn't until about five years later that we got some insight into why he was so ineffective. In 2005, Frank Pitzel was arrested for stealing $278,000 from an elderly client, leaving her to die alone and penniless in a nursing home. Ultimately, in 2006, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison for the offense, and of course, he was disbarred. But we gain some insight into why Pitzel stole the money from his own words at his sentencing hearing. He was using the woman's account to write cashier's checks to himself. He deposited the money both in his personal account and in his account at the Paradise Casino in Peoria. In a tearful, rambling statement at his sentencing, Pitzel said that his actions were due to a quote, long struggle with alcoholism and gambling. And Jamie Snow knows all too much about Pitzel's problems. In 2000, he was watching the man responsible for saving his life struggle through them.
1: You know, the first time I met Frank, I I was so impressed by the way he talked and by, by the way he just carried himself. I mean, he really came off like he was you know, really on top of his game. And, you know, leading up to trial, he was having a lot of health issues. He was having a lot of uh, back problems. He was missing a lot of court because of that. He was missing, you know, meetings with me. So I was uh, initially impressed with him. As we got closer and closer to going to trial, though, I, I was looking for some clarification as to, you know, what are we going to do? You know, what's our strategy? How are we going to do this? What are you going to do? And he just was, he just didn't want to get into it with me. And there was one point, it was, uh, I think it was Thanksgiving. I started trial right after Christmas, and I think it was right at Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving Day or the day after. He came to the county jail, and we were sitting there. And I, I pulled the state's witness list out, and I may have already told you this, but I pulled the state's witness list out, and I just randomly ran my, my finger down the page and asked him, you know, can you tell me who this witness is and, and, and what you're going to do to challenge this testimony? And, I mean, he just flipped out on me. <laughs> he flipped out, you know, was just telling me, you know, I'm, I'm the lawyer, you're the defendant, I don't have to explain anything to you so on and so forth. And uh, there were a couple of times during the trial when someone would get up on the stand and when they would say their name or whatever, you know, he'd lean over to me and be like, who is this? And uh, I called Susan, my co-defendant, to testify. When she got on the stand and and swore in, he leaned over to me and he was like, okay, what do you want me to get from her? I'm telling you, man, it, it was like I was in the... It was like I was in twilight zone, you know. He just wasn't prepared. I asked him, too, you know. I asked him, I said, what would happen if when I was testifying, I said, you know, what would happen if I just held my polygraph test up and told the jury, look, this is a polygraph test that I took and passed. that The state doesn't want you to know about us. So what would happen if I did that? And he said uh, they would probably declare a mistrial, and we'd have to do this all over again. Biggest mistake I ever made. Bob was not doing that. I should have did it. I, I was trying, you know. I, I was trying. I even, you know, I tried to tell the judge prior to trial. I'm like, look, I don't think they're ready. And he was, like, asking them, you know, how much time did they spend with you? And and, and the one lawyer said, you know, Pat Riley said, oh, I've spent, like, you know, 18 hours with him. And, and, and Frank Pitzel was like, you know, I've spent, like, 60 hours with him or something like that. And the judge is like, oh, that's 80 hours. That's plenty of time. And after my trial was over, I, I filed a FOIA request for the login book. You know, they got to log in when they get there, what time it is and what time they leave. And if you add up every single minute that they spent with me in the jail was like 16 hours. The judge was like, Oh, that's 80 hours. That's plenty of time. And it was really only 16 hours. I'll be honest with you. You know, I, like I said, I felt like I was in the twilight zone, you know, but at the same time, I, I just kept telling myself, you know, okay, you know, this, these lawyers aren't doing a very good job, but you didn't do it. They can't convict you for something you didn't do. And I was really uh, uh, wrong about that. And then, we find out like, and then we find out later on, I mean, his issues that he was suffering. You know, Frank ended up going to prison himself. He got 10 years for stealing, you know, $300,000 from an elderly client. Which is kind of funny, right? His sentencing hearing took three days, and he ended up getting 10 years. Mine took about maybe an hour and a half, and I ended up with life. But in his sentencing hearing, we find out that, you know, he was suffering from a lot more than just his back issues. He was having some mental issues and substance abuse problems and gambling, all of that. You know, it's, it's a sad commentary on our judicial system. I mean... It was the perfect storm. I had prosecutors that were withholding evidence and allowing witnesses to testify to things that they knew or should have known was false. And, and I had a couple of lawyers that were just
0: overwhelmed and unprepared to, to try the case. Imagine entering into a trial for your life and realizing that the man that you've trusted to save you doesn't even know who the witnesses are that are about to testify against you. There's a reason why Pitzel was unable to properly cross-examine these witnesses. Rather than spending his trial prep time researching the pending testimonies, he was busy stealing money from old ladies so that he could go get more time in at the blackjack tables with a Jack and Coke in each hand. Now, Pitzel eventually did pay a price for his actions and choices, but not before Jamie Snow paid the ultimate price the rest of his life in prison for something that he had nothing to do with. Carlos and Juan Luna were in their house at 8070's Empire on the night Bill Little was killed. As the story goes, they were looking across the street to see if their Aunt Gloria was working at the Clark Station. They were considering going over there to ask her for some candy. As they were looking across the street, from a distance that we now know was over 220 feet, Carlos and Juan saw a man walk out of the Clark Station, across the front of the building, and north towards the alley. Neither of them reported seeing Danny Martinez or his car, and most certainly neither of them recalled the man leaving the station coming face-to-face with anyone. So in discussing Carlos Luna, I'm going to start off with what the jury heard at trial, and then I'll fill you in with what they didn't hear some of which was excluded because Pitzel didn't do his job, and some of it was withheld by the prosecution. On June 21, 1991, Carlos Luna went into the Bloomington Police Station to view an in-person lineup. This was the same lineup that Danny Martinez viewed on the same day. This is the report from that lineup. The next witness was Carlos Luna, who was taken into the viewing room and shown the same lineup. After the lineup was performed, Detective Crowe asked Carlos if he wanted to view anyone a second time. He asked to look at number 6, Jamie Snow, again. After the second viewing, Carlos was escorted out of the room and asked by Detective Crowe if he recognized anyone. He stated that number 6, Jamie Snow, looked like the person. Crow asked him if he was sure and described what made him look like the person that he seen leaving the gas station. Carlos stated the shape of his face and his hair looked the same. Detective Crow then advised him that he did not have to pick anyone just because he was shown the lineup. Carlos was then asked if he was sure or if the person he picked just looked like the person he had seen. Carlos stated, quote, I think he is the person, End quote. Carlos's identification seemed to be pretty solid. At least, he appears to be a lot more sure of himself than Martinez, who never gave Jamie a second look. But still, even with Luna's identification, Crow chose not to pursue a case against Jamie. Dan Katz and Tina Griffin, however, thought a lot more of Carlos' ID. So here's the thing. Luna didn't testify in person at Susan's trial. Instead, the jury was shown a video-recorded deposition that was filmed in his home state. But at Jamie's trial... He was on the stand, in the flesh. No doubt, a lesson learned from the post-trial meeting with Susan's jurors. At Jamie's trial, Carlos explained to the jury that on the night of Bill's murder, he was in the northwest bedroom of his house when he saw the man who was presumed to be the killer leaving the Clark Station. State's attorney, Charlie Reynard asked him to describe what he saw that night. I'll read this part right from the transcript. Carlos. I saw a white male, approximately five foot eleven, walking along, walking east out of the gas station. Reynard, And approximately, well, what did you then see him do when he walked east? The individual walked east until the sidewalk was available and he headed north. And at what point or where was he when you lost sight of him? The second he turned to head north. Okay, did he head in the direction of the alley? Yes. Do you know specifically whether he went to the alley or some other location? No. Please indicate what, if anything else, you noticed about him when you observed him in that very short period of time. I remember the individual wearing a black cap, baseball cap, and a trench coat, a black coat, and blue jeans, and I believe that he had white sneakers on. Reynard, did you notice anything unusual about his arms or the position of his upper body? Yes, it seemed to me at the time as if he was carrying something underneath his coat. And did you form the impression at that time as to what that item might be? I thought to myself it could be something, but what was it you thought? I thought it was the tray in the register, the cash register. So Carlos recalls seeing a five foot eleven man wearing a black baseball cap, a trench coat, and blue jeans walking across the front of the station with what he thought was a cash drawer tucked under his coat from 220 feet away. He goes on to say that he joked with his nephew that that guy probably just robbed the station, and then they went back to watching TV. A few minutes later, Carlos heard sirens and saw police and ambulance lights. At that point, he looked outside again, saw the police and ambulance were outside, and then he went outside. Now, this isn't a point that anyone else has ever tried to make, to my knowledge, but I have a theory here. So Carlos saw a man with a long black trench coat and didn't see Martinez at all. Martinez saw a man with a short brown spring-type jacket. So what if they didn't see the same man? Hear me out here. We've discussed on our follow-up episodes that there could have been two different men involved in Bill's murder. One hypothesis presented by our co-host Zach Weaver was that person number one enters the station, robs Bill, and heads out to the getaway car. Then person number two, for whatever reason, perhaps because number one had left a witness, gets out of the car and goes back into the station and shoots Bill. So now let's consider what we know. According to Martinez and Pilo, the man left the station while Pilo was already on the scene. Pilo saw Martinez going back and forth, and Martinez says that he saw the man as he was going back and forth. Also, Officer Williams arrived on the scene within seconds of Pilo in his squad car. Carlos says that he did not see Martinez or his car in the parking lot, which has always struck me as strange, since Luna would have literally had to look right through Martinez to see the door to the station. He was directly in the Luna boys' sightline. And again, there was already at least one squad car at the scene within seconds of Martinez witnessing the man leave. Now, it is possible that Carlos and Martinez witnessed the same event, but I believe that it's also possible, in fact, maybe even more probable, that we're talking about two different events and two different people. Consider this scenario. Luna looks out the window at around 8.15, 8.16, which, by the way, is the time that he said he was looking out the window. Person number one robs Bill and takes the drawer. Martinez isn't in the lot yet. Person number two then goes into the store to kill Bill eliminating a witness, right after he walks into the station, Martinez pulls in to fill his tire. Bill is shot, and Martinez sees person number two leaving the building. Now, I'm not saying this is what happened, but I do believe that it's a hypothesis that we have to at least consider. In my opinion, Luna's and Martinez's statements are just too different to have been the same event. But with that being said, we also know that at least one of them is lying. So there's that. Carlos is asked if, at some point that night, an officer came over to his house to interview him. He says that someone did, but that he doesn't recall who the officer was. But years after Jamie's trial, a series of memos were discovered through a FOIA request that very likely would have changed the outcome. Unfortunately, the memo was redacted in a way that we still don't know the identity of the officer that interviewed Carlos that night. But what he has to say in that memo is not only devastating, but it was also withheld from the defense. We're going to get to that in just a few minutes. For now, let's get back into the transcript. Luna goes on to testify that the next day an officer took a statement from him. That's the statement that the defense was privy to, which is, for the most part, pretty consistent with his testimony. During that interview, Carlos was shown the two composite drawings that we're all familiar with, the two created by Danny Martinez and Jerry Gutierrez. He was asked which sketch looked more like the person he saw, and he indicated that Martinez's drawing was closest. Then, as his testimony continues, Luna explains how he chose Jamie out of the in-person lineup back in 91. Quote, I just imagined every one of them doing it, and he came to mind, and he fit the picture. End quote. And then, Carlos's direct examination ends with this exchange. Question. As you look at this photograph, do you continue to believe that this is the individual that you saw on the night of Easter Sunday, 1991, coming out of the Clark Station? Carlos, yes. And that makes two eyewitnesses who positively identify Jamie Snow in front of the jury. During cross-examination, Pitzel tries to use some of Luna's testimony to contradict Martinez's. He asks about the length of the unsub's coat... In a 1999 interview, Carlos told Katz and Barkas that the coat went all the way down to the person's ankles, which, as we know, is in direct contrast with the short spring jacket that Martinez described. Unfortunately, when Pitzel asked how long the trench coat was, Luna now, while on the stand, says that it didn't go down to his ankles. It just came to below the waist. So then, Pitzel confronts Carlos with his 99 interview transcript, where he stated that it came down to the ankles and asks why he's now changed his story. Luna responds that he just remembers better now and that it wasn't that long. But the question that we should all be asking ourselves is, first of all, why did he change the detail? And more importantly, how did he know that the detail needed to be changed? The rest of Cross is pretty uneventful, other than the fact that Pitzel was able to use Carlos to discredit Martinez. Since he and Martinez viewed the same lineup, in the same room, he asked Luna if there was any problems with the lighting. Luna said no, which should have done some damage to Martinez's testimony that the reason he couldn't identify Jamie in 91 was because it was too dark in the room. But more importantly in this cross-examination, we see one of the biggest misses in Jamie's trial. Pitzel asked Carlos if he recalled Officer Tom Sanders interviewing him back in 1991. Carlos says that he did. Then Pitzel asked him this, quote, Did you tell the officer that you doubted you could identify the suspect you saw running? End quote. Carlos then, towing the company line, replied, I don't remember. And Pitzel moves on. But the great failure here is what Frank Pitzel failed to do after that, which was call Officer Tom Sanders to the stand. Sanders is the officer that created the composite drawings from Gutierrez and Martinez's descriptions. If you're looking for yet another reason that Susan was acquitted and Jamie was convicted, this is it. Steve Skelton called Sanders as a witness in Susan's trial to impeach Luna. And it worked. He testified that the reason he didn't create a composite from Carlos's description is that there really wasn't a description. Neither of the Luna boys were able to provide any details of the perpetrator's face, and therefore their descriptions were completely useless. Which made it pretty hard for a jury to believe that Luna's ID was in any way useful. But in Jamie's case, Carlos Luna positively ID'd him, and then Pitzel didn't put Sanders on the stand to impeach that identification. Which led to this portion of Prosecutor Tina Griffin's closing arguments. The section of Griffin's testimony regarding Carlos Luna goes on for pages and pages. I would encourage all of you to go to our website and read the entire thing. If you do so, you'll see just how much weight the prosecution put onto Luna's testimony. Another lesson that I'm sure they learned during those post-trial jury meetings. Focus on the eyewitnesses. But listen to a few of these excerpts where Griffin is really stretching to convince the jury to ignore the discrepancies in Martinez and Luna's testimonies. From the transcript of the closing argument. On the issue of what the defendant did, there have been many witnesses. The array of witnesses, each with their own piece of information, their own piece of the mosaic contributing to the entire picture, was sometimes confusing and sometimes seemingly unconnected. And you can expect, as defense counsel did in opening, that there will be some question as to whether or not you should believe the testimony of certain witnesses that will be described as weak, not to be believed. That's what was said to you in opening. Consider that one frequent argument can be referred to and described as the pick and shake argument. And I refer to it in my opening where it goes like, if you take one piece of evidence for a moment, And you're looking at that single piece of evidence, and you're attempting to pick out that single piece of evidence from the rest of the evidence, and then to consider, well, you can't really believe this evidence, so the reason goes, so you shake it loose of all its connection to any of the other evidence. And then you try to say, oh, by itself, standing alone, it means nothing, so we'll just throw it out. It doesn't mean anything. And then from that point, Griffin moves on to talk about Carlos Luna's testimony. She is battling to convince the jury to consider his eyewitness ID of Jamie as valid. How could he have known that the cash register drawer was taken? If he's wrong, then why is his testimony corroborated by all of the jailhouse snitch and confession witnesses? Things like that. And then she tries to get out in front of what she knows has to be coming from the defense. The fact that Luna's testimony and Martinez's testimony conflict with each other. Her closing argument reads like a written interpretation of a magician performing an illusion. Look over here at me waving my magic wand with this hand, the distraction, and ignore what I'm doing over here with this other hand, palming the coin that you've been tricked into believing disappeared. From the Transcript Will you be asked to focus on the distance between Mr. Luna's bedroom window and the front door of the gas station? About the lighting? About the time he had to observe? About the fact that he didn't see Danny Martinez or Danny Martinez's car? Will you be asked how it is conceivable or possible to see anything with certainty from that distance? There are several facts which support why or how Carlos Luna could have seen what he described to you. But the first thing you need to realize is not how, but whether he did in fact see what he saw. And when you consider the reasonableness of his testimony, considered in the light of all the evidence in this case, the stunning reality is that he did see this defendant and the defendant did admit his role in the killing of Bill Little to 12 different people and that another witness has identified the defendant as well. That's just a very small snippet of Griffin's efforts to convince the jury. And the sad truth is that it worked. As we're all very well aware, Jamie was convicted. But after his conviction, new evidence was discovered. Evidence that was withheld by the prosecution. Evidence that would have answered Griffin's question to the jury. Quote, Is it conceivable or possible to see anything with certainty from that distance? End quote. And the answer is, no, it's not. The document that was discovered in a FOIA request years after Jamie's trial was a memo written by Detective Dan Katz on October 7, 1993. Katz is writing the memo to an unidentified officer in an attempt to convince the officer to file charges against Jamie Snow. The memo addresses several aspects of Jamie's case, and we're going to cover all of them as we move along relevant to today's episode, is what Katz lists as the number one reason that Jamie Snow should be indicted. This is the first point of Katz's memo. Quote, as of October 7, 1993, the following items are the major contributing factors for proceeding to the grand jury for indictment against Jamie Snow. Also, reporting officer feels there is a need for further investigation in this case, and those points of the investigation will be explained further at a later time in this report. First, looking at the evidence which would be available to use against Jamie Snow in court. Number one, Carlos Luna viewed a human lineup at the McLean County Jail on 6 91 almost three months after the incident. Carlos viewed the lineup and when asked if he wanted to view anyone a second time, Carlos asked to look at number six, Jamie Snow. Carlos looked at number six the second time and then was escorted out of the viewing room. Carlos was asked if he recognized anyone, and Carlos stated number six looked like the person. Crow asked Carlos if he was sure and what made him look like the person he saw leaving the Clark station. Carlos stated that the shape of his face and the hair looked the same. Crow then advised Carlos he did not have to pick anyone just because he was shown a lineup. Crow went on to ask Carlos if he was sure or if the person he picked just looked like the person he had seen, and Luda stated, this part's in quotes and all caps. I think he is the person. End quote. Evidently, Katz was barking up the wrong tree. Because the unidentified officer that responded to the memo was actually the officer that interviewed Luna in his home on the night of the murder. This is his response to Katz. Quote, The reason that Carlos Luna did not positively pick someone out of the lineup is he couldn't if he wanted to. I interviewed him and his friend the night of the murder. I talked to them that night and a few days later individually. Neither of the boys could see the person clearly. I stood at the window they looked out and it was difficult to identify the people running around the lot and I knew most of them. There was no way they could make an ID. The most they could give was general height, weight, and type of clothing. This is why Detective Crowe questioned any ID by the boy. He knew the aforementioned facts. The state's attorney's office was in possession of this memo before they went to trial. Before they called Carlos Luna to the stand and had him ID Jamie Snow. Before Tina Griffin spent 20 minutes convincing the jury to the value of his testimony in her closing arguments. They had it the whole time, and they buried it. The reality is that both Griffin and Reynard knew that 14-year-old Carlos Luna couldn't identify Jamie or anyone else. They knew that Tom Sanders didn't make a sketch from Luna's description because he had absolutely no idea what the man he saw looked like. And they knew that an officer had actually spoken to the Luna boys that night and that he looked through their window and realized that it was impossible to identify anyone from that location. They knew all of that. And the fact is, you don't have to work that hard to make your case when you have the right man. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Over a decade after Jamie's conviction, Carlos Luna wrote an affidavit. In the affidavit, he states, I did a lineup and chose the person who was number six. He was the person who best fit the description of who I originally observed. At 14 years of age and at a distance of about 200 feet, I cannot say that I am sure that Jamie Snow is the person who I observed. And then he goes on to say, At the Jamie Snow trial, I observed Jamie sitting at the defense table wearing shackles. I knew that he was the defendant. He was not exactly what I had observed, but he was similar to this person. As a 14-year-old, I thought that the police had caught the right person. Because of this, I identified Jamie Snow. I am not sure that I identified the correct person. I'm going to leave you today with a portion of a conversation I had with Jamie yesterday. The more and more I learn about his case, the worse I feel for him. His life has been ripped apart, intentionally, by prosecutors that were determined to win at all costs, even if it meant convicting an innocent man. As I begin to fully understand the weight of how Carlos Luna's testimony affected his life, I wanted to know his thoughts on the subject. I didn't see in Susan's trial that Carlos testified. Do you know if he testified in her trial?
1: It, well, what it was is they went to, his wife was pregnant. They went to Arizona. Steve Skelton and the state's attorneys went to Arizona and did a videotapes deposition. And they just played the videotape uh, deposition. You know, it was just a basically a, a back and forth, you know, the state questioned him, and then and then Steve Skelton cross-examined him, and just like he was on the stand, you know, they swore him in and everything, and then when it came time for them to present that evidence in Susan's trial, they just played the the videotaped uh, deposition of uh, Luna.
0: It obviously didn't have nearly as much effect as at your trial because he testified in person at your trial.
1: Well, I don't know, you know, I we've, you know, we've uncovered some evidence now about Carlos that uh, uh I think Tammy probably I'm sure she showed you the memos that we've uncovered, right?
0: Yeah. I'm a little there's there's a file in there that is a a memo that I thought was from Katz, but maybe it's two Katz from like ninety three or ninety four.
1: Yeah, it's it's from it's from Dan Katz to whoever his boss was at the time, whoever was the the, the head of the I guess the task force that was uh, Investigating at the time, you know, my jury had one question, and the only question they asked was they wanted someone to demonstrate for them the distance of 200 feet, so they could determine whether or not an identification could be made from that distance. And the judge's response to them was, "You've received all the evidence that you're going to get. Contribute, you know, continue to deliberate." Shortly thereafter, they they return a guilty verdict. We didn't know. <laughs> That, that memo existed where there was a task force, you know, police officer from the night of the crime was actually looking out the Luna window. And you, I mean, you read the memo. I mean, he's, he's saying, look, you know, this isn't an ID. This kid couldn't have made an ID if he wanted to make an ID. I looked out the window that night. And I couldn't identify people that were running around in the parking lot and I knew them. Right. Man, that have, can you imagine how? You know, powerful that would have been (laughs) if we would have been able to get that cop on the stand to testify to that.
0: Right. And, And Tina Griffin really leaned. I was surprised she really leaned into Luna's identification in her closing arguments. Oh, my
1: God. And she knew she was in possession of that memo. She knew it. And there's so many things. I mean, look, when he testified in Susan's trial, you know, Steve Skelton, or when they did deposition, Steve Skelton, you know, he's like, look, describe the guy that you saw, you know, and he was like, you know, he came out face forward, opening the door with his left hand, with his coat all the way undone, which is an absolute contradiction to Danny Martinez. And they tried to portray him like they were both seeing the same person. And if you were standing at the Luna house and you're looking out that window, you would have had to look straight through Danny Martinez to see the door. And also in that memo, they're talking about where that that cop is, whoever authored the memo is saying, look, you know, I talked to them guys and boys that night, and I talked to them again individually a couple weeks later, and both were able to give nothing more than just a general description. As of today, right now, none of that has ever been turned over. You know, whatever reports, whatever notes, whatever was generated out, I- out of those individual interviews with, with the two boys, you know, a couple of weeks later, they've turned over nothing. I mean, look, it, it doesn't take a, a scientist to, to know why they've been turned over that memo. I mean, that, that memo destroyed the credibility of, of Carlos Luna. I mean, and why didn't they have, you know, ask yourself, why didn't they have a Juan Luna testify? He was looking out the same window at the same time. Why didn't he testify? It doesn't take a scientist to, to recognize why they, they they didn't turn over that memo. You know, there were numerous jury members that said, you know, hey, I would take a police officer witness's testimony as credible just simply because they're a police officer. And if we would have had that memo, Bob, we could have made that we could have made that police officer get up on the stand and testify to what he saw that night.
0: Did did any of the evidence come out? Uh, in cross-examination of even, like, Sanders, who's saying that he didn't think that he could, they could make an ID, they didn't do a sketch?
1: <laughs> no. None of that came out. My lawyers didn't, Frank and Pat didn't bring any of that out, you know, and and I wanted to say this, too, before we get cut off, you know, the last time I was when we were talking about my lawyers, you know, I think they, they rendered ineffective assistance counsel. I'll never give that up, right? I really absolutely believe that. But, They were handcuffed too by the state in the fact that they withheld so much evidence from them. Had Frank and Pat have had that memo, had they have had some of the other stuff that we've, you know, that we've uncovered and and, and that we've sent to you that you haven't really talked about yet, had they have had that stuff, I think their strategy would have been one hundred and eighty degrees different.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, you you had a double-edged sword because you had an attorney who eventually was disbarred and, and put in jail was not doing a good job, and then you add to that, even the inadequate job he was doing, he didn't have all the materials he needed to even do an inadequate job.
1: Right. It's kind of hard to put forth a sound trial strategy when you don't have everything to work with. Right. Even if you're, you know, suffering from issues that you have going on, it's kind of hard to put forth a, you know, he may have seen all this stuff, Bob, and been like, whoa, you know, hold on. I need to rethink this case, man. I, might. We, we can win this thing. You know, and it may have completely changed his whole approach to how he, he represented me. I'm so disappointed their ineffectiveness. I, I believe today, as I did the day that they convicted me, has costed me, you know, the last 20 years of my life. I have to give credit where credit is due, whenever it's due, you know, and I can't just completely dump on, especially Frank Pitzel, because... Uh, I know he was suffering from issues that he was suffering from, but they, they handcuffed him. They didn't turn over all the evidence to him. And it's kind of hard for you to do your job like that, you know?
0: Yeah. In a word, the state cheated. Very clearly, they cheated to get their conviction.
1: Absolutely. It's
0: just not right. And that's compounded by the fact that there were things that Pitzel could have done that he didn't. I think his his cross examination of Danny Martinez was pathetic. So a big difference with Luna from Susan's trial to yours is, Skelton called Tom Sanders to the stand. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, they had they had that information. Why didn't why the hell didn't Pizzo call out Sanders?
1: I don't know. I mean, it, it to me, here's the composite artist who went through his all of his training and everything. And I mean, he would have had to testify that neither one of those boys were able to describe the person's face. Right. You can't see the person's face if you can't describe their face. You can't make an identification, and, and that's kind of corroborated by that memo. Even the, 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 the cop in the memo is like, look, this isn't an ID. It couldn't have been an ID. They couldn't id somebody if they, if they didn't want to die. You know, so if, if you think about it, if you'd have put Sanders on there, and then you'd have put the cop that authored the memo on there, oh, my God, it's slam dunk
0: yeah I mean you take the I think some key components to your case besides all the snitch testimony, which I don't think would have had the weight that it held if it hadn't been for Martinez saying he's hundred percent sure that it was you, which was bullshit and then you got Luna saying that it was you know he's on the stand saying that he's identifying you you're the person that did it yeah you know it's hard for a jury to ignore well if you looked at if you'd done a better job cross-examining Martinez and and, and I, I know they were hamstrung there too because they didn't know. All, they, were, they The state didn't turn over all the times that you were in lineups and photo arrays that he didn't choose you. Yeah. Yeah. They couldn't go across against that. And then if they had put Sanders and the author of that memo on the stand to say there's no way, you know, the memo saying there's no way that they could have identified anyone. And then Sanders saying, I tried to get them to give me a description and they couldn't because they didn't have the details. Then both of their testimony goes away.
1: Well, when you peel some of the layers back, you know, you, you, you get to the, the heart of the matter, and, and the heart is that they, like you said, they cheated. And it's disgusting to me, man. When I think about it, and it's me, if they'd have did it to you, or anybody else, and I was reading, and I, I was going through, and they'd done the same thing to you, it's disgusting. Yep. You know, it really is, man. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's wrong you were to do this in your job, if you were to do the stuff that they did, you'd be fired, man. <laughs> yeah. You know, they get promoted.
0: Right, because they got their conviction. doesn't matter how they got it, they got it.
1: Yeah, it's just, you know, but I mean, Carlos is kind of, he's kind of saying something a little different now. Right. Than what he testified to, and, and uh, he's kind of admitting that, hey, man, you know, i I don't know if that's the dude or not.
0: Right. Well, and, and, you know, that comes down to what that juror that we had on said. You know, I think a lot of people fall prey to this is the fact that like when she went into that meeting with the prosecutors after Susan's trial. It's like you think that the prosecutors and the police are the good guys and they're doing the right thing and you want to help. And I think that's very likely a contributing factor to Luna's testimony. You know, he thinks he he thinks he's doing the right thing, but he's he's not. He's lying
1: prosecutors are good people man I mean I, I I have to believe that the majority of them are on the up and up and they're actually trying to do the right thing and I think I think that's the same for for the majority of of the cops out there too you know I mean you would think maybe I'd feel differently about them but I don't I think most of them are on the up and up and trying to do the do, do the right thing you know what I mean it's just yeah in this case there's just a group of them that aren't you have one minute left that weren't Good got together and they they did what they did.
0: Yeah, I hundred percent agree with you. And, and but the, but the danger is when you take for granted and assume they're all good.
1: Right, that's the problem.
0: Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInAsong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 7 logo was created by me, with assistance from Zach Weaver and Shane Yoder. All of our font across all of our logos and banners was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Natalie Alicia, Pamela Westby, Pam Maples, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com or you can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at TruthJusticePod, and my personal Twitter handle is at Truth. And you can even follow Mike at MBussing89. For more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at TruthJusticePod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.